Hello, James here, and yes, you have dialed into the James cast. As unusual as it might be for me to have a few words with you before we start the podcast, it really is kind of important that, one, I thank so many of you for signing up to the James Cast website, www.thejamescast.com. Thank you very much, and, and keep doing so. Second of all, I thought we'd make this podcast a little bit different. And as you know, typically what I do on the James cast is I repost some of what we do on Podaholics. So on these podcasts, I thought, why not include some of the pre-roll? Give you a little sense of the conversation we have before we start. It's kind of fun or not, but you can you can just fast forward if you get bored. So that's what we're going to do this time around on the James cast. Yes, you're going to get all the great programming that we usually put together, but a little bit of the pre-roll. And also, I had a wonderful conversation with Marilyn Zakor. She is from Beirut. She's here in Dubai. She's doing some great things. But she has a message that she would like to share post Beirut explosion. And I think it's really important. So we've also included that here on the James cast. Look, enough of me talking. Let's get to it. Here's Marilyn and the James cast follows. Hi, my name is Marilyn. I'm the host of who run the world podcast and I'm Lebanese on August 4, 2020 at 6 7 PM. Beirut was rocked with an explosion that shattered the entire city. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki, this is the third biggest explosion in a city in recorded history. Countless lives were lost, hundreds of homes brought to the ground, and 300,000 people are displaced. We urge you not to normalize this in your minds. This is not normal in the Middle East. This is a human catastrophe that deserves global attention and support. Lebanon had already been battling with hyperinflation, more than 60% unemployment, and the coronavirus. People can't afford to buy a loaf of bread, let alone rebuild an entire city. If you can spare any amount, no matter how small, there are many ways to donate. Please go to lebanoncrisis.carrd.co slash hashtag donate. It'll link you to trusted NGOs like Impact Lebanon, the Lebanese Red Cross, Beit El Baraka, and so many others that are doing the real work on the ground. The link once more is l-e-b-a-n-o-n-c-r-i-s-i-s dot c-a-r-r-d dot co slash hashtag donate. Beirut needs you. Its people need your help. Please don't turn a blind eye. Even $5 can go a long way. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do As it. As it happens. <laughs> <laughs> My name is James Pikeway. This is Catching Up. Welcome to Potaholics. And you are in for a treat because we are going to be talking today to Marilyn Zakur. And, I, you know, I don't know where this conversation is going to go. In fact, we were just talking about this. Who knows where it's going to go? Because I was introduced to you by Andrew Thomas, and he said, you've got to meet this extraordinary woman who really defines the non-linear life, the non-linear career. And I mean, in your case, it goes all over the map. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Living all over the map and just making it work. And Marilyn is also a podcaster. We're going to give you the links to all of that because that's pretty cool. Who Run the World is the podcast she does with Rhea. And She's also set up her own enterprise, her own business to help people like you and me figure out how to conquer the world, not necessarily in the office, but from around. Marilyn, welcome to Catching Up. Thanks, James. That's a very kind introduction. And thank you, Andrew, for connecting us somehow. Oh, I, I look forward to going all over the map with you today. Uh, you know what? It's just fun to meet people. And I think one of the challenges we face here in the UAE, but around the world is how often do you get to sit down and just have a meandering conversation with someone and, and grab a whole bunch of time off them. And I don't know about you, but I find that really hard. So, you know, when do you get to sit, when would I just naturally get to grab 45 minutes to an hour having a conversation with you? Yeah. I mean, I think in a city like Dubai, it's also a function of how the city is designed. Yeah. There is no serendipitous 
possibilities, you know, yeah. unlike a place in France where you could be sitting on the street and watching people. I always say, like, going down the street with their baguette <laughs> and you can kind of tell what their evening is going to look like. And yeah. it's a bit more difficult in a, in a place like this. I, lo I love that, that imagery that you've just created yeah. of being, you know, sitting in a cafe and you're, you can create that story. And yes. I think that's yeah. that's a real challenge. Isn't it? In fact, that's a real challenge that we face in many contexts today where people are, you know, that we're, we're keeping everything really close now and yeah. we're not necessarily out. And when we are about, you know, we're, for, for instance, we're sitting in the lobby of the Rove Hotel doing this podcast and it's, it's, it's got people, but it's, you know, it's hard to make out what people are up to. You know, it's, people are still pretty guarded. Yes, I think people are now reducing sort of their personal space in yeah. the sense that you can't enter it anymore yeah. uh, and people don't trust each other anymore and um, I think actually we're going to see fewer and fewer of these serendipitous moments and one of the things that I always try to think about because my job is to help companies um, understand how we continue to work and learn but also to innovate mm. is that a lot of innovation comes from serendipitous moments. Give me an example. Um I don't know, like the Coke <laughs> I'm putting, recipe. I'm putting you right <laughs> on the spot there, aren't I? <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of the ideas we get, if you if you can recall the latest good idea that you had, is yeah. probably that you were you were walking by and someone was talking about something or you were at the dinner, you ended up having a conversation about Thailand or whatever it is. And then from there, that inspires you to connect the dots to what you're doing right now yeah. and somehow come up with, with some innovative idea that you wouldn't have come up with if you were doing this on your own, right? Mm. Like there's a book called Range. Uh, I okay. don't know if you've read it. It talks about how diverse thinking and people that sort of come have... A, wide range of knowledge yeah. are actually able to innovate to a further d degree and one of the examples that he gives is about um, this problem that NASA was trying to solve in one of their sort of satellites they had these um, solar panels they were trying to capture enough energy to refill the batteries of the station or something like that I hope I'm getting it right and uh, and the NASA scientists had spent like years slaving over this problem trying to make it more efficient uh, and in the end they ended up just putting the competition out there there was some kind of reward i don't know twenty five thousand dollars a hundred thousand yeah. dollars and and the really mind-boggling thing is of course they received submissions from all sorts of people and every single submission they got from people who are not nasa scientists um was more efficient than the ones they had <laughs> come up with and and it's not because nasa scientists aren't smart yeah. it's because when you allow the serendipity of being inspired from something mm. else, from a different context, you can solve a problem in a whole new way that you wouldn't have thought of. And that's how companies often, you know, come up with their new strategies. I mean, one of the stories that I love to tell, but it would take us like 30 minutes, is the IKEA story. Yeah. But a lot of the innovations that um, um, Ingvar, I, I can't pronounce his name right, um, that he and his team came up with were just like a, a really funny example is the flat pack. Yeah. Right, we all think this is some kind of genius industrial move, but the story goes that one client wanted to take a table right there and then, and it couldn't fit it in his car. And one of the store clerks says, "Hey, how about I dismount it for you, and you can mount it again when you get home?" And the guy was like, "Sure." And there you have it. There you flat go. Pack. Flat pack is invented. <laughs> right. So it's really about those serendipitous moments, and we're not going to have any of those, or many, you know, fewer of those yeah. than we did before. And I wonder what the world will look like as a consequence. You know, when I read through your bio, I mean, you've been all over the globe, but your career, and when we talk about living yeah. non-linear, is anything but a linear career. Could you have imagined when you were in kindergarten that you would be doing what you're doing today? Not at all. <laughs> and also, I come from a Lebanese home, which means you technically only have four career choices, choices <laughs> open to you. Okay, right? hold on. So I've never be heard this before. A doctor, a lawyer, an engineer... Or an architect. Okay. Like those are your options. Okay, well, you hit the fourth. Well, yes. I mean, I had to, right? <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been disowned by my entire family. But that's kind of... You You grow up in a household where if you don't do one of these things, you're, you're not successful, mm. right? And so, I, w I mean, when I quit architecture, when I told my mother that I was not going to become an architect, even though I was going to get an architecture diploma, yeah. she was upset at me for like five years. Really? She didn't understand the choice. Um, and so, of course, I couldn't have imagined where I would be because I've always just 
kind of followed my inspiration, I think, or, mm. or what I felt was the right thing to do at that moment. And sometimes it's taken me to crazy places. But on the whole, you know, if you look back from where I stand today, it's been a good journey. I, I, you, you brought up the fact that you come from a Lebanese family. Yeah. It's August 11th. We're date stamping this conversation. It's a week after the tragic and yeah. horrific explosion in Beirut that that last count has over 300,000 people are homeless. That's right. Uh, over a hundred and I, I, I think I heard it Well, there's, there's about 150 people who are confirmed to have yeah. died and I think there's about 500 more that aren't confirmed so mm. they're technically listed as missing. And then I didn't see the number of injured now that's come up but it's, uh, it's horrific numbers. I mean, thousands, like 5,000, 6,000. I could... Yeah. I, this has been, for for a, a city and a country, a defining moment. That is, that that I, I I'm not Lebanese. I don't have family in Beirut nor in Lebanon. Yet I'm having trouble processing this. How how does this affect yeah, you? I mean, the thing is, as an expat, and and I've obviously this one is the most horrific. But mm. I've been away from Lebanon for a few years and have gone through a few explosions. This is not comparable, but. Either way, as an expat, you're not allowed to grief in the same way. Mm. It's um, okay. it's an interesting place to be because your city has been ripped out. You know, the place where all your memory is, the people that you love or people you didn't know but you used to cross in the street um, are gone. Yeah. And w if you're in Lebanon, you you get to you have to actually just go through the trauma and try to rebuild. If you're away you feel like you're not entitled to that and instead you have to be the support network of, of those who are home. And so I think a week later, I still haven't processed it. Like I, I don't allow myself to cry. I get mm. emotional, but I don't yeah. allow myself to cry because I, I find that I'm in a position of privilege and I'm, I'm mm. not entitled to it, although I'm pretty sure it'll catch up with me at some point. But yeah. um, I just don't know what to do, right? And so what I try to do is I give myself one homework every day. Okay. Right? Um, so, I don't know. The first day was obviously checking in on everybody. And, and you make lists in your head. And, and who could have been there? And who works nearby? And whose home is in that area? And you make sure that your family didn't just die. And, and hopefully it didn't. And so that's day one. And then day two, Rhea and I actually sat down together. We are like, what are we going to do? And... Because we're podcasters, we yeah. said, okay, we're going to talk to all the podcasters we know and we're going to ask them if they could do an episode about Lebanon because the more, more horrific than the act itself is the speed at which we forget it yeah. as a global community, right? And, Where and Lebanon has had, you know, thing, I, I hate to say it, it's, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, well, here's an example. I'm listening to an eyewitness account of a gentleman who was in a building when this explosion happened and his first thought was, oh, this is another car bomb. Yeah, because we've had like dozens of those in the last yeah. 15 years. And he, he said, you know, those those would, he would shake after those. He was just terrified. And then when this, he, he said in this interview, and it was maybe, you know, 10 hours after the, he said, I'm still shaking. I can't stop shaking because it, 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 it's just one thing after another. I just, I hope people understand the scale of this. Um, half of the Lebanese population lives within the area of damage. And Lebanon is 4 million people. For a lot of people, it's, it's a city, right? Yeah. It's just think. Because we think it's a country. Oh, it's only one city. Beirut as a whole is like Dubai, essentially, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, Lebanon as yeah. a whole. And so I always think of Lebanon being so much larger. I know, <laughs> it is larger. <laughs> but, but, but it's but it's not really. I mean, but I mean, it's population. tiny, right? Yeah. And the core, uh, I mean, 50% of the population is in that circle of damage. And, and when you look at pictures, it's like taking a city off a map. Mm. It's not, it's not, oh another Beirut thing, yeah. you know, because we hear so often about, and Beirut is even a joke in films, you know, they say it's like Beirut to signify that it's complete chaos, yeah. referring to the civil war. It's not Beirut. Like That's, I think, the most important thing is like, people can't just dismiss it as another thing that happens in the Middle East. This doesn't happen. Yeah. And I don't know if, you, if you've seen this, but I think your listeners should know, like it's the third biggest explosion in a city in recorded history after Hiroshima and yeah. Nagasaki. Yeah. Like that's, that's the scale. It's not, oh, yet another fun thing going on in yeah. Beirut. Oh, look at these Beirutis. They're so resilient. They clean their streets and they rebuild their town. This is Hiroshima scale, yeah. you know? 
I, I just think of, of the children and, and, and those are our age, but who've, who've now lived through this. Their schools are gone. Their mm-hmm. playgrounds are gone. Their things, their lifestyle, their friends, how they're going to connect and carry on a normal life, whatever that normal was, it's, no, it's not happening. Yeah, I mean, I think every generation of Lebanese hopes that their kids will not be like them. Yeah. Right? That the this endless cycle of, a friend of mine calls it commas. We keep adding mm. commas, right? We had the civil war, then we had this. And then in the last year, we had a revolution, then we had COVID, then we had uh, inflation. Our currency has lost its value like 70%. It's And then we have this, and it's, it's constantly adding these commas. Yeah. And I think, ev- I'm not a parent, but if I, and actually the reason I left Lebanon was, I left Lebanon the day I decided that maybe one day I would want to be a parent. Mm. And I thought, I can't bring up people in this space. It's just, it's so destructive. And here we go again. And everyone who had been hopeful and stayed home and and had the courage to try and build a real place for their kids. Now, here's another comma. And here's a whole other generation of people who's going to grow up traumatized divided whatever the consequences are going to be angry and then now it's going to take another two generations to maybe get to where we were hoping we would be the the entire government yesterday resigned and and who knows where that is all going to lead the rampant corruption in in government so we'll see what what happens how does that work with the bureaucracy that's a whole other layer that you know the bureaucracy didn't resign the government's changed so exactly it doesn't i mean it's a good thing that the government resigned. In fact, they should have done it yeah. the same day or the next day. It's hilarious that it takes them three days and more manifestations. I don't know if you saw this, but we had a few um, manifestations in, in the days after and people were shot at. Yeah, like These are people that just lived through the most traumatic experience of the 21st century. Let's put it this way, yeah. honestly. And they go and they ask for the government to take accountability and they get shot at. Just and so yeah, the government resigned, but um, the president is still around. Um, the parliament is still there, as you say. The bureaucracy is still around, and what happens now is we get a caretaker government mm. until they can agree on another yeah. new government, and that doesn't move the needle enough. So I, I don't I think l- it's going to subside. As a Canadian, listening to to Justin Trudeau talk about what Canada is going to do, they he, he was very emphatic. He says, "Look, we're we're you know going to give five million dollars to start." Uh, we're going to match any donations that come, mm-hmm. but none of it will go to the Lebanese government. Yes. It'll all go through, you know, there's 10 bodies that have been on the ground for 25 years yeah. doing stuff. And he said, that's where it's going to go. Because, and, and I just think, wow, you know, to not be able to trust the government of a country. But the other, you know, the other, the other really sad thing for me is I've met so many proud, and I don't think I've, I've met a single Lebanese, anyone from Lebanon, a single Lebanese person who isn't, you know, emphatically proud about their country. But all of those Lebanese people I've met are not in Lebanon. Yeah. And they, they, they dream of going home someday, but it's almost like it's a dream. And they, they just, you know, they're, they're so, so in tune with what's going on, but they don't want to live there. And I, I, that makes me really sad. I mean, it's our perpetual destiny to be yeah. away from home and longing for it. Yeah. I think Lebanon might be the only country in the world that has more diaspora than inhabitants. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's it's a we don't think about these numbers, but when the revolution started in October, I don't know if you remember, there were manifestations in more than fifty cities around the world. I do remember that. It was it you know it, it got covered, and then it got closed down, so it was hard to hear more about yes, it. Yes, yeah. of course, because the news cycle yeah. needs new news. But what was really interesting is, do you can you think of any other country where if a revolution started back home, there would be manifestations in every place from South to North no. America to Europe no. to whatever. Can no. you think of that? I can't think of a single it, place. It's the only place. Yeah. And so it's it's our it sounds like her destiny to always be away. Yeah. It's you you talked a little bit about what yourself and and getting podcasters yeah. involved. So what what do you want to do? What's your what what's what's your piece that right. that you and Rhea and and others? I mean, so one of the themes that we because we've been working on a few themes, but yeah. one of them was how do we keep the conversation alive? Because mm. the worst thing that could happen is people donate, yeah. whether they're Lebanese or other governments or whatever. 
we all need to feel better so we kind of flush our conscience, right? Mm. Like, yeah. oh, I've donated this much, I s did this, I sent that, whatever. And then in two weeks, everybody forgets about it. Yeah. And so the idea was to try and reach out to as many podcasters as we can, but also people, uh, you know, working for any kind of media and say, like, please keep the conversation alive. We'll get you people to talk to, we'll point you to the right, like, witnesses or yeah. experts or whatever you want to cover, you know, like we'll find you someone on the ground that you can talk to. Just don't let this drop out. Because yep. what it, what happens if it drops out is our current political system just does what it does best. It just, it waits and recovers and keeps going, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the Lebanese lose international interest and support. And so we're reaching out to say, do more episodes or write more content and we'll help you with that. Um, we recorded like a public service announcement, uh -huh. I guess, uh, which is a, a minute long that if you want to insert in previous episodes. I want it. I want it. Yeah. We'll give it to send you. Send it over. Yeah. Brilliant. So anyone who wants to do that, we'll, we'll send it to them. We tried to reach out to our network of podcasters to do that. So that's our first theme. Our second theme is to think about secondary needs, right? Mm. So right now there's a lot of um, money coming into, thankfully, to the primary needs, like you know, medicine, food, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and we're two tiny people, so we're not going to fix that problem, even though we contribute and we obviously promote yeah. um, all the great NGOs. But like every piece counts. And if you're helping one family, one yeah. person, that makes a difference. Even if it's $5. I mean, yeah. there's a few visuals uh, going around about what $5 can buy you in Lebanon. And Quite it can lot, really actually. support someone, yeah. right? Um, but we're focusing on the secondary needs and having a podcast about female uh, leadership. Sure. Um, we're trying to figure out how to get sanitary pads and tampons yeah, to yeah. Lebanon, which were already out of reach in terms of pricing before this. Yep. I don't know how it's going to be after. Um, it's just supply train, right? It's yeah. Where were those things stored? And see, people don't think about that. No. Actually, I don't know if you've, um, do you know Come From Away? Have yes. you listened yeah, to yeah. it? There's a song in there when they're going to buy the supplies. Yeah. So it's a musical, right? About just for those who are listening, um, about 9 11, uh, when people were forced to land on a Canadian island. In Gander. Gander. In Gander, Newfoundland. Exactly. Because it used to be the biggest airport ever because yeah. people used to stop there on their way to North America to refuel. And there's a song in it when they're going to buy supplies. And the guy goes to the local um, pharmacy uh, and he's, he gets food, he gets whatever. He goes back and the woman who's helping him organize says, You know, there's going to be children on that plane. So then he goes, he goes back and he gets milk and diapers. And yeah. then he comes back and he, she's like, you know, there's going to be women of child-rearing age on that plane. And he's like, so? She's like, I'll go. And so <laughs> she goes and gets yeah. um, uh, sanitary pads. And it's just about trying to sort of anticipate the next wave of needs. And then lastly, I'm uh, so I went to business school at INSEAD. And so we're working with um, fellow alumni to kind of activate the alumni network nice. and, and say... Like Lebanese are a huge part of the INSEAD community and say, but it's not just about Lebanese donating. Right. The Lebanese will do that because our families are there. But yeah. can we leverage all of the connections and the friends and the you know relationships that we've built over time and have everybody feel that yeah. it's part of how they can give back? And it's you know it's it's that keeping people engaged, yeah. which is and as as you said, it's it's the little things, just the little things that people do in life. Like, like you said, having sanitary pads. People don't even think about that, but we need all these things. And what about the, the, the child who's got asthma and now yeah, exactly. where's their Ventolin stuff? And what about the, the diabetic who, you know, all these things, That's right. just stuff, diaper yeah. rash. So the, if we're a diverse group of people looking at the problem, we'll each think about some yeah. other thing and, and collectively we can make sure that everybody gets what they need, hopefully. Okay. But the whole is massive. Um, so the estimations of the damages... And this is not even to help sort of improve the economy. Just to fix what's been broken is $15 billion. And yeah. the other way we look at it is, I mean, governments have been really generous. We're super grateful. The sum of the donation, including what we see from the ground, is about $300 million. Mm. It's amazing, but there's 300,000 displaced people. So do the math. I keep wondering where they're sleeping, where are they living, what you know they they're staying in their homes that some that people are staying in their homes that don't have doors or windows. Yeah, some people luckily have families, but also the Lebanese are incredible with their solidarity. Uh, so uh, anyone who has a hotel or a home that's empty, 
there's actually a map now on Google Maps of all the shelters. So okay. people know where to go. Interesting yeah. stat that I heard is when we talk about windows yeah. in, in buildings, and I mean, we're talking a phenomenal number have been blown out. There is no glass manufacturing in Lebanon. No. They don't, they don't manufacture glass. Well, we don't manufacture much. We import 80% of our needs. Which I never realized. I mean, I, I always think of Lebanon as this industrious country that is creating all of this stuff. And it, I mean, industrious people, but not necessarily. Yeah, we're industrious, <laughs> but not industrial. Yeah, um, yeah. We actually don't produce much in Lebanon. I, I was surprised by that. I mean, and I don't know why. It's a city. Like, yeah. again, isolate Dubai in your mind and tell me whether Dubai would be able to produce all the things that it needs. It can't. No. Right? Yeah. Um, and so we don't actually manufacture much. Maybe some food products, um, some hygienic products, things like that. But yeah. on the whole, we have to import everything. And yeah, the first thought for me was like, not only are people not going to be able to pay for glass, but even if they can pay for it, they don't have any. Well, in, is the building... I, mean, I, I was watching a, a, a clip of some some really kind folks helping a, a very elderly yes. lady out of her home. Yeah. The she balcony didn't, lady. She didn't want to leave. No. Be, but her place is literally going to fall down. And, I, you know, this to me is just, well, hold on a second. Now we've got all of these buildings. Again, we live yeah. in it. Go to Beirut. It's it's vertical. And and a lot of these buildings are condemned now. Yeah. So actually there's a couple of NGOs. Muwat and Lebanon is one of them. And actually uh, students from my, um, my university, uh, Alba, who are going around the buildings and assessing damages and creating maps. Okay. And, you know, laying down the data of yeah. which ones are safe and which ones are not, um, which is fascinating because the government should be doing all of this. But instead, it's, you know, individual um, effort. Yeah. But they are trying to map out which ones are safe and which ones aren't. And there are thousands of architects who've kind of just said, whatever, like, we'll donate our time. We can make drawings. We can assess buildings. We can fix the ones that can be fixed. And it's just, that's another beautiful thing. And it's... It, it's, it's beautiful and upsetting, to be honest. It's you know this is this is that whole you know there's that, that, that whole element of what's going on in Lebanon is the Lebanese have given up on their government pretty it's, much, and it's and I I heard this over and over again from multiple people both here in Dubai and online and on on the news feeds. People just said we're just we're just going to do it ourselves because we can't depend on our government to get this done. And I, thought, wow, you know that's that's pretty darn impressive. Yeah. Sad as well. But you know what the next level of that is? If we can't depend on our government to do anything, then we also can't depend on them to protect us, and right. therefore we will bear arms and we will start shooting at each other. Like yeah. that's the, yeah. it's it's now in the beautiful phase. But having gone through this so many times, it gets ugly really yeah. quickly. Because the assumption is, all I have is myself. Yeah, and we've we've seen this in in you know other countries. We've seen this in Haiti. We've seen this in in Latin America and countries that you know after the hurricanes and things, and it, it got nasty. Yeah, it and really it will. I know it will, and it's crazy that it will. That's heartbreaking. It, yeah, I mean, you don't know what to do about that, and it's yeah. a system, right? We were earlier we were talking um, before we started recording about about how you change systems yeah. and it's not one thing right you have to change all the nodes in the network right yeah. and and the sad thing is when you think that governance doesn't exist then you have no respect for the law either and it's understandable right it's not oh look at these bad humans it's yeah. just like well listen when this bomb exploded and and i like thought i was dying the next morning no one came to help yeah. from the government. Yeah, there were a few nice young Lebanese people who came to sweep my floor, but on the whole, I'm alone. Yeah. And then who knows what that turns into. And and I guess you've been through so many cycles of the same old, same old, same, same, but different, same, yeah. same, but different. And yeah, let's hope. I mean, maybe this, maybe this will I be sure, the I catalyst. So. I, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. And I hope <laughs> that there's enough people like you, which I, I think there are, who are saying, hey, we have an opportunity here yeah. to, to do something. And, and I want to I segue a little bit. We'll, we'll keep on this topic area, but we segue a little bit because as, we, as I, I sort of look through all of the different career paths that you've yeah. had in, in really a condensed period of time, <laughs> yeah. it, it just, it, it's sort of like the microcosm of, of so many Lebanese folks I know who are saying, you know, I can do that. 
yeah, I'm going to give that a try. Or someone says, hey, would you be interested? We want, to, we, want you to, we want you to take over the management of this organization. And you might go, oh, man, I've never really done that kind of thing. Mm. But, okay, I can do that. Yeah, I mean, I and think it's a... It's a I always talk about this. I, I also teach at university. I always talk about this with, with the young people that I get to interact with. And it does come from being Lebanese because in... I used to explain this also to our colleagues from Canada and other places who were working with Lebanese people. And I'd say, look, when you grow up in a country where if there's no electricity, you have to set up your own generator. If there's no water, you have to bring it yourself. If you know, you yeah. become an expert at everything. <laughs> um, and you also know that, well, not, nothing's going to come. So yeah. you might as well figure it out. And that means that as a professional, you, when you grow up in that resilient system, um, when the challenge is presented to you, you're like, sure. I mean, I had to figure out how to get electricity, so this yeah. is going to be easy, right? Um, and I think it leads to a really interesting life, personally. Well, I, I want to talk about that, yeah. the segues from your know, architectural background. You know, you went to, went to <laughs> business school, end up at uh, the really the second largest real estate company in the world. Yeah. Then you end up running the uh, Dubai Opera. That's right. And, and you move forward. How, Take me through the path of, of how all, all right. this happened. How did you get to all these things? Because I'm, I'm looking at this going, wow. I mean, that's all I could say. I'm just <laughs> going, wow. All right. Let me tell you the story then. Um, so I studied architecture. I, as I said earlier, um, you don't have a choice in Lebanon. That's one of the four yeah. approved careers. <laughs> um, but my mother actually is a software engineer. Okay. Um, she studied that when computers were rooms. And um, before I finished university, I kind of knew I wasn't going to be an architect. I just didn't love the day-to-day, -day, mm. even though I loved the theory. I was yeah. a great academic, but I didn't love the day-to-day -day of being an architect. Um, I serendipitously uh, got asked by a friend if I would want to come work for the company she was working at. I'm like, sure, what do you guys need? I mean, I was in my early 20s. Yeah. Um, and... It turned out that it was like a digital agency that they were um, specialized in working in the cultural industries like books, film, yeah. art, cinema, education, fashion. Uh, and my first job there was essentially reading books and writing reviews and doing the data entry for them. Okay. And I was like, okay. I mean, I hadn't finished university yet. I was 21 or 22. I needed to do something with yeah. my time. And so I'm like, okay, I'll take this on the side. And then... It was clear to me I wasn't going to be an architect, so I just stuck around. And I went from doing data entry to being a project manager to leading the teams of project managers to then leading the teams of developers as well because, you know, we used to develop websites and mobile right. apps and so, so on. So inspiring people really became your calling, being able to get people to do their stuff. It's funny. I, I Back at the time, I just think it was um, getting things done. Yeah. Right? Like, I was that person. I was the person that if my boss gave me something to do, I would just get it done. And those people go a long way, it turns out. Now that I'm a few <laughs> years older and I hire young people, I can see it in myself when I see this young kid that, like, just gets it done. It may not yeah. be perfect. I would have done it differently, but it's done. Yeah. Those people go a long way. Um, and so I just grew in that company. And then I, obviously, I finished my architecture diploma, but I dumped it. And then I spent nine years in the sort of startup. Any regret? Any regret with? Oh, zero regrets. Okay, good. No, I don't think... I don't think you should ever regret anything because when you look at where you stand, yeah. if you're happy with where you are, then all the decisions of the past were good ones. Right. And if you're not, then do something about it, yeah. you know, rather than look I, back. I, I, pause for a second. How yeah. do you deal with people who are constantly second guessing themselves? Because clearly you didn't second guess yourself. You, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. Yep. You know what, this is kind of, this kind of works. I'm going to go this way. And you, you, you went down the path and you embraced it, but I, you, you meet, I mean, you're so a very true. specific personality, but you must meet so many people who are constantly saying, oh, I don't know if I did the right thing. Oh, I don't know if I should do this. It's like, do, yeah. do it or don't do it. Just <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very rational, pragmatic person from uh -huh. that point of view. I just don't Very much think an architect. That sounds like maybe, an architect. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't think that regret leads to good decision making. Okay. Right? So actually for me, even though I will have a little thing in my heart saying, oh, I wish I'd done this differently, I know that every decision I've ever made that was based on regret turned out to be the wrong one. Ah. Um, and in finance, it's sunk cost, right? Yeah. Like whatever I spent money doing before, it doesn't mean that I should continue doing it moving forward. I need to stop and look at the future only, like just cut the past out. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I have a hard time with people who second guess themselves because I just don't find 
meaning in that yeah. approach. Um, and I think you should just be the other thing I always tell them is you should be empathic with past Marilyn, right? Like <laughs> Past Marilyn. Yeah, past Marilyn <laughs> made the best decisions she could have made given the information she had. Yeah. You have more information now, but you're not allowed to go back and scold her because she really tried to do her best, right? right? And so if you're empathic with your past self, and your present self, then you can say, well, okay, yeah, sure, we would have done it differently if we knew, but we didn't. So let's move on, because now we know. So we can make new decisions and keep moving. And resilience is, of course, part of having a nonlinear path, because you're constantly thrown in situations where you haven't, ha- you don't have the first clue about how to do something. Well, so, so what, what led you to leave the agency? So it, it had been nine years. Um, it's I a got long time. A, yeah, which is a good time. Yeah. I got an executive MBA. Okay. Which also kind of messes with your brain. Um, How so? Oh, I mean, I don't know a single person <laughs> who got an MBA who ended up kind of staying in their job. You know, okay. everybody just, <laughs> it kind of opens your mind up to to the things you've been doing wrong, to the things you haven't explored, to the yeah. things you haven't learned. Um and so I... So be w- that should be the caveat on anyone who's doing an MBA. Just beware <laughs> that if you're doing an executive MBA and ultimately that executive MBA is, is based around whatever you're doing, you're probably going to end up leaving your job and creating something else and moving on. That's likely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and actually I tell this, I, I help INSEAD interview future candidates and I tell them that. I'm like, are you prepared for this? Because your life will not look the way you, you think it's going to. Do they believe you when, you, when you're when you interviewing I don't think they really know it until it happens to yeah. them. But then they remember. Yeah, then they go, Marilyn ah, said this that's to what me. she said, yeah. Um, but at the same time, so yeah, it had been a while with that company. Um, also, the company was going into a direction that I didn't really feel aligned with yeah. anymore. And so I left in May. Which is, a, you know, what a, what a positive thing when you realize that, hey, I got to move in a different direction because where I want to go and where things are going, a lot of people don't do that. They don't get off the train. They just say, ah, you know, I got this going on and I got that going on. I'll just grant a merit. Yeah, I've never met anyone who said, I wish I had waited two more years to make that decision, you know. It's just, it doesn't happen. Um, So you left the agency. I left. I was in Paris at the time. Uh, Worst places to be. (laughs) (laughs) Paris is so beautiful. Uh, I was getting married that summer, so I said, we'll see. And then my husband got a, a job in Dubai. Uh-huh. And so I said, hey, let's go. I mean, we're Lebanese. How hard can it be? And y- the universe works in interesting ways. I got a call from Imar uh, because someone I had met three years before, um, she was the cousin of a colleague and she was an architect and she didn't know whether to stay an architect or to move into digital. And we ha- we met and spoke for like three hours. Never saw her again. And then I guess the chairman... Um, of Imar was looking for more digital people to join uh-huh. the team or and, and slightly more senior people. And um, and she thought of me. She's like, uh-huh. okay, look, there's this girl. She lives in Paris. I'm pretty sure she would never move here, but why don't you guys give her a call? Yeah. Uh, and so they did. And it was just around the time where I knew that I was going to be heading to Dubai in September. And I eventually met the chairman. He interviewed me, gave me a bunch of fun assignments to do. And then he said, join the team. And again, here I had no clue what that meant. Like, <laughs> I didn't have a job. And is a huge organization yeah. with so many different layers. And Absolutely, yeah. and um, and it was it's just exciting. It's also really interesting to to be close to someone like that yeah. who's built so much. Um, and so I joined the team. I call it my Charlie's Angels job because um, <laughs> I've, I've read you. Yeah, I've read that somewhere. The only thing you know <laughs> is that you're Charlie's Angel, but Charlie will call you and give you a mission, and you better get it done. You know. <laughs> And so that's what I did. I joined in September and then in, in November uh, they needed someone to support with the marketing. Yeah. And so I, the chairman asked me if I would be the acting CMO for a while. And I thought it was like a couple month thing. Uh, and then they, you know, they would find yeah. somebody else because I had no clue how to do real estate marketing. Uh, and then it ended up lasting for a year. Um, and then I was always pestering them for more of a PNL role. I wanted to be able to run a business. Uh-huh. Um, and then um, the ex-CEO of Dubai Opera had left uh, and they had needed someone to sort of take over. And they were like, hey, how about you? You're always giving us shit about <laughs> the fact that you want to do something else. And I said, sure, I'll figure it out. And that must have been exciting. I went on Amazon. I bought like the all every book I could find on how to run a performing art space. And yeah. I read them and tried to not mess it up. 
and uh, it, w- it was going quite well actually and then the virus yeah. happened and obviously the opera closed and I was too expensive to keep around doing nothing uh, so I was let go and um, that's when I decided to start my own business I mean and, and so quickly to to morph through I mean Hey, stuff happens. Yeah. And you're you're sitting there holding this bag going, I've got these skills, I've got this skills, I've got that skills, I've got this skills. What am I going to do? Yeah. And I think the first thing I did when I was let go was Rhea and I put out a podcast about it. Okay. And the reason we did that... It's very cathartic and, and well, very liberating. In yes, a sense. it is. And, and the other one was, it was in the early days, but you could tell that there was going to be like dozens of firings. Yeah. And I didn't want to sort of recreate that idea that you should feel ashamed about getting fired yeah. right yeah and so i was like no 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 we're gonna go out there we're gonna tell everybody and we're gonna tell them that they're not allowed they shouldn't feel ashamed well and it's one thing to feel ashamed for being fired when you've done something wrong COVID 19 it yeah. closed down economies like there there's no gigs there That's are right. no events yeah. the dubai opera is this huge organization that is premised on we're going to be full every single night pretty much yeah and if we're not doing something every single night or at least five nights a week yes that's right if we're not doing something five nights then we a week, don't make money no yeah so i i went out i put it out there like i recorded myself talking about all of this and i think that just helped me to move on yeah. it was like okay everybody knows now you don't have to pretend anything. You don't have to lie to people. You don't have to not tell them and hide in a corner. Yeah. What are you going to do next, right? Um, and I think my whole life I've known that I would end up running a business. Um, I didn't care whether it was my own or somebody else's, uh-huh. but now was an opportunity for it to be my own. Um, and I sat down and said, what is one of the things that you feel strongly about waking did up you do for? This, did you do this on paper or did you just sit there over a coffee? No, I just sat and like, my Rhea was locked up with us. Okay, so uh, were you in a, a particular place? Like, give, give in us our house. So yeah, so we. What did it look like? I, we I, live I'm, in. A I'm very much, you know, where you're sitting on the sofas, <laughs> where you're looking you the out story. the window. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, we at the time we were living in a two-bedroom apartment in in Darwassel Mall, which okay. is this uh, really cute development in Jumeirah. It's very Mediterranean looking. It's white with blue stones on it. Um, Rhea, my best friend, uh, my co-host on Who Run the World, had just... And she's at Deezer, by the way. Who works at Deezer, runs podcasts for them. Yeah. Um, had just moved here for her Deezer job. Oh, and uh, she was staying with us for a bit until she found her own place. And then the lockdown happened and yeah. she ended up living with us for four months. And so um, one of the thir- first things that my husband made me do, like week one, uh, God bless him, is he forced us to buy desks. Because he's like, good plan. We're gonna need them, and <laughs> people don't realize this, but this is gonna last a while. Yeah. So we did that, and I think I was essentially sitting at the desk in my bedroom, which was like a new space. We had we didn't have it before, and sitting thinking, okay, what am I gonna do now? Am I gonna look for a job? Yeah. I mean, the economy doesn't have jobs for people like me right now, and also I. I needed a break, right? I needed to do something different than well, work pre- for somebody else. Yeah, Charlie's Angels, you were pretty intense. I mean, that's... And that was every, insane. Everyone knows how Charlie's Angels works. You know, Charlie calls. Yeah. You've got, you know, f- you know, 72 hours to have a solution and you got another 10 hours to get it up and running. And hey, then you're going to get another assignment. Pretty it's much. Like, what about a break? What about a rest? No, 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 yeah, no, no. It was the most intense work period of my life. I think I was so exhausted by the end of it. Um, I was almost happy I got fired. <laughs> is, that, is that... Am I allowed to say that? Um... But so I, I sat down and I said, okay, Marilyn, you, when I used to be on the startup side, I always used to tell entrepreneurs like, you know, you shouldn't worry so much about perfecting things. You should just put them out there. Yeah. Like the market will tell you whether there's interest or not. Like just go move. And one thing that I'm really grateful for Amar and Dubai for having taught me is the value of speed. Mm. Because as So rapid s- prototyping. Yes, I mean, and, and this company is so good at that. Like, I used to joke that I thought that in technology was where speed was, but here's this real estate company, like, schooling me about what speed means. Yeah. Um, and, I, and the one thing that I've always loved and been super joyful around is when I allow other people to collaborate in a way that the sum of their parts is greater, right? The yeah. co- collaboration has always been something I obsess about as a manager, as a teacher, as a person. Like, I'm all about how do we get people to have harmonious conflict that leads yeah. to great things. Some people are scared of that. 
There's, I mean, I know I've met a lot of leaders yeah. in a lot of different organizations who are very scared of that. They don't, they don't want to be able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at everything. And you five people are really good at your things. In fact, you're way better than I'm ever going to be, but let's now work together and make this make this happen i mean i think that's the only way you build anything meaningful yeah. is, is it has right. to be greater than you yeah. otherwise you're just one person what are you gonna do yeah. um and i was like okay marilyn collaboration fine what does this lead to and i'm like yeah i'm gonna have to sell services to companies uh, yeah but nobody has an lnd budget right now so what are you gonna sell them and then it just it it was very obvious to see that the world was going to change in ways that were irreversible. Mm. You could tell because the scale of change was so massive. Yeah. You can't just erase that. Um, and to see that the way we work and the way we learn was going to be fundamentally transformed and, and actually remote work or flexi work or whatever we call it these days is one of the biggest challenges to collaboration. Well, you know, I want to jump in for a second. Yeah. You know, we a lot of work has come back in Dubai and a lot of things are starting up slowly. I was I was listening to a report from Montreal in mm-hmm. Canada. Only 25% of downtown Montreal is back in the office. Like it's still closed down. Yeah. Like there's you know, which feeds exactly into what you're talking about. Like this is traumatic change, change for good, but change that's happening and it's it's, it's hard to deal with. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen companies around the world announce everything from 100% remote forever, like yeah. Twitter, yeah. to... Can you fu- imagine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fujitsu is at 90%. Mm. Uh, there are companies that have said 60 or 50. And the thing is, beyond the pandemic itself, well, first of all, a lot of companies are struggling financially. So yeah. what does the CFO do? Oh, let's cut down office space. Here's a simple solution to our complex problem. Yeah. We'll just slash 50% of our real estate. That's going to be easy. But then I have a professor who always says, uh, he says, we didn't learn to hunt lions in the savanna on Skype. Exactly. And, and the human species hasn't evolved to be able to do... There's a lot of things we can do online and remotely, yeah. and, and yeah. that's great because we get to have more personal freedom. But there are so many things we don't know how to do that way. And so companies are going to have to figure out how to create the right balance between those things, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's what I thought, okay, here's a real problem I can help somebody solve. Uh, and that's when I created Cosmic Centaurs in April. So how's, how's it going? Um, look, it's really, I mean... I mean, I mean it's, it's early, and there, you know, you you're what a, what a great position to be in because you've created this, this this, in in a sense, organization to help people leverage change. That's right. And the challenge is, people are in the process of going through change, and they're in the process of of this this releveraging of things, not necessarily realizing what they need to be doing now yeah. because they're too in they're too in it. Yeah, I mean, and I think nobody really knows what yeah. to do next. If there was an easy recipe, we would all be implementing it. I think what's been really interesting so far, so it's been about four months now, yeah. is the amount of response that I get from people when they hear what I'm doing. Right. That tells me I'm doing something right. Like, we organized a... Um, two-day virtual conference in eight days. So on Sunday, we decided that we were going to do it for the following Tuesday. We managed to get 19 speakers, six different panels, but more importantly, more than 1,100 people registered to attend. People hungry. Yes. So that tells me that people need this. They need answers and solutions and people to think with about what the future of work and learning in organizations looks like. And we already have two clients that we're working with, consulting with them on what the right model is and how to implement are it. Are they here in the UAE or um, are they outside? So um, one in KSA and one in okay. Brussels. Oh, nice. Yeah, quite brilliant. And um, and a lot of interest and a lot of conversations and people just randomly, for the first time in my life, people randomly reach out to me on LinkedIn and set up calls. Yeah. Right. And actually, the way I met Andrew was through Abdel Rahim, who saw what I was doing, messaged me and said, oh my God, what you're doing is amazing. Can we talk? We talked, he sent me feedback about how to improve my website. This is someone I'd never met before. <laughs> and that tells you something about the generosity of yeah. like humans, right? Never met him, sent me feedback about my website, connected me to three different people. Here I am talking to you as a consequence, right? Yeah. And 
And the fact that this creates so much feedback means that I'm doing something right, means that there's a need for this. And the product will come. I mean, yeah. now I have a product, like I know what I sell. But two months ago, if you'd asked me, Marilyn, so what do you sell? I would have been like, I don't know, call me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and that's okay too, because I got validation so early on from mm. people that there was a hunger for somebody yeah. to support them through so this. So the, the question I have, and are the, so I don't want to know who the two companies are. It's, a, it's, sure. it's inconsequential, really. But are they, are they similar in what they do or are they different in what they do? So one is an education, one is okay. in um, service. They're okay. a design firm. All right. I think that the companies that need this kind of help the most are companies where the value creation of a company is through the human capital. Right. Right. Because if you manufacture Tupperware, yeah. you don't really need me. Right. Like you you have a design, you reproduce it. You're not trying to change the universe. Right. Like you don't need to bring humans together and help them collaborate in meaningful ways. Right. You just need a well-run organization. Exactly. I can still help you, but yeah. it's not as impactful. Um, but I think that the companies that need the most help are companies where human brains interacting is what create value. So either service companies, education um, organizations, but also anyone who's creating IP. Mm, okay. Right? Like someone who's creating patents or, or hardware or... Because again, like, can you imagine like Steve Jobs having to design the Mac? Yeah. Like the first <laughs> one, you know, the you know, yeah. beautiful, colorful <laughs> one sitting behind a camera. Yeah. It's just, it's so hard to come up with these kind of things if we're not together. Right. If we can't feel each other's reactions, hesitate. It's that subtlety. It's the subtlety of face-to-face, in-person in, in yeah. communication that we miss on Zoom. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's unfortunate. And we can't replace it. And that's okay. It's just about knowing when is a good time for you to be away from your colleagues, focused on your work, accomplishing individual tasks, communicating with people who anyways are not near you. Yeah. Right? The, you know, multinationals have had to do this for years. It's not new. Um, and then when do you need to be together and how do you create the right both physical environment? So as an architect, I'm also sensitive to the physical space and the virtual space and the right meeting moments and engagement and serendipity moments mm. that companies don't end up just losing their momentum yeah. because the early days of remote work are, were the honeymoon. Right. We're just we're first of all, everybody was panic working. So yeah. when I hear a manager say, oh, but we were so productive. I'm like, yeah, because everybody was fucking sorry. Can't, can't curse. <laughs> everybody was afraid they were going to lose yeah, their yeah. job. That's why they were so productive. Yeah. Uh, so don't be naive. Um, but also we were applying like very clear plans. Yeah. But now how do you make sure you survive the next year if everybody's sitting in their office at home? It's not. Yeah. It's not that clear cut. And so companies need people to help them see how to create the right balance depending on what they're trying to create. And I really think that wherever human interaction is at the center of how they create value, that's where someone like me can have the most impact. So here, here's a question. Generally, when we talk about these kind of service yeah. enterprises, how do, you, how do you convince or how do you present to potential clients the value of it so that they want to pay for that? Right. So there was a good um, a study that came out recently from Bain, I think. Um, they actually went out and uh, created an index for how you um, qualify engaged employees versus uh -huh. satisfied employees, but okay. also inspired employees versus satisfied employees. And what they found is that engaged employees are 1.5 times more productive than satisfied. Mm -hmm. And then inspired employees are 2.25 times more productive. Wow. Now, let's put a dollar value to that. It means that for every satisfied employee, you, to replace an inspired one, you need to hire 2.25 of those people. Uh -huh. So you need to double your resources. And so there's a real dollar value that you can attribute to engagement mm. and to feeling aligned with the mission of an organization. We kind of, we think engagement is a fluffy HR term, yeah. usually. It's That's like, oh, employee of, engagement, great. A lot of people think that. Yes, which is which is pretty sad actually. It is because the the real the real data shows how much inspiration and engagement can leverage a single person. Mm. And I mean, I always go back to this like one of the theories about why the human race is um 
is sort of so advanced is our ability to believe in common myths. Right. So beyond our ability to have fire and all these things that we think allowed us to progress as a species compared to the rest, uh, one of the theories is that we're the only species who can believe in the same stories. Right. Right? Yeah, we're yeah. the only species who believes in nations and countries and money. Like these are all concepts. Yeah. And, and yet when we rally behind one of these myths, we're undefeatable. Right, we become incredibly powerful. It's the basis on which wars are fought. Right, yeah, yeah. to use an ugly example, but um, and so in companies, the ability to create that myth and to rally everybody around it, that can really change the world hmm. or change whatever it is that you're working on. And people underestimate that. They think they treat humans like cogs. Yeah. You know, oh, you have to move yeah. so the next <laughs> cog can move, so the third cog can yeah. move. But humans can be inspired to be three cogs. Yeah. And that changes everything. And so now there's a dollar value. So I can go to an executive and say, you just fired half of your staff, right? Do you want to make sure that the remaining half operates at the same level? Here's what you need to do. Mm. And so now it's not a fluffy HR hippie thing. It's here's a dollar value that you can attribute to what yeah. engagement looks like. Right? Interesting. Where, where do you see this organized? Where do you see yourself in, in a year's time? A nonlinear person like yourself, who knows where things could go in the next you know, month. But what, what's, what's your vision? So a lot of the, our revenue at 90% now is consulting. So yeah. I have um, a full-time employee, a partner and two interns. So there's five of wow. us. And a lot of what we do is mainly consulting work okay. or training and workshops. Uh, we are currently working on a software idea, a hardware idea, wow. and um, and we're trademarking um, a concept for for it to become something that we can certify people okay. on. Yeah. So, what I'm hoping that Cosmic Centers will do is identify new structural problems, and then rather than just answer them through tailor-made consulting um, work, to try and answer them in a scaled way. Mm. So. Software is a very good way to answer a problem at, at, a, at a bigger scale. Yeah. Um, and so who knows? We might be designing buildings in a year, but um, the idea is let's find problems that are shared across organizations that are new, that no one else has solved before because the pandemic has created them. Yeah. And then let's try to find a way to impact them at a really large scale. That's kind of what the vision is for this company. Yeah, it sounds exciting. So I'm hoping we have like 20 employees in a year or something. That's pretty exciting. It is. That's yeah. I, I, I keep looking at the clock here because I, I can't remember what time you said you needed to run at. Um, and I don't want to... I'm uh, all right. I have yeah. another 20 minutes. Okay, so we'll, we'll keep going for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the reason I say this is I years ago, I was doing an interview with Tim Ferriss. <gasps> I know. It was actually what? pretty cool. Yeah, I did oh, an interview exciting. with Tim Ferriss on the phone and I kept him. And he missed his flight. No. Yeah, so to this day, I'm probably in his, you know, blacklist of people. <laughs> but it was a great conversation with Tim Ferriss. You yeah, know? I can imagine. Was, I'm so jealous. It was right when the four-minute the, the four work week came out. So oh, we were just talking about that. Amazing. It was Yeah, it was fun. It oh, was, that must have been fun. Yeah. We, what was, what's your favorite thing he said that you remember? You know, because he was telling his story about his biology degree and stuff. And it's just, you know, having the right people around you is key. And he said, it's not, and, 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 and really disconnecting from things and just focusing on the stuff that matters to you. Mm. And that stuff typically is what matters in, in your organization. But he says, there's so much distraction. There's so much noise. If you get rid of all that and you can, you know, I think it's a four hour work week, but anyway, you know, yeah. you get rid of all the four minute. Whoa, that guy's I was amazing. Like, what? Yeah, it's four hour work week. But if you can get rid of all of those distractions and you can just focus and your, your, your game. And I, I think the key, when I look forward at all the stuff that, that he does, yeah. is he just has an incredible group of people working with him that allow him to focus and they all do their jobs. And I think, I think it's kind of cycles back to what you were talking about with the folks you have working with you now. If you trust the people you work yeah. with implicitly and you've got the best people to do that job and you don't have to be looking over your shoulder saying, hold on, did you get that done? And it's like, here's a job, mm. bring it to me when you're done. Can't agree more. In fact, um, there was an intern who joined us um, who said like an MBA, right? Yeah. But I think she just wasn't focused on us. Uh, it was okay. a part-time thing. Yeah. She's, she was launching her own startup. Um, incredibly smart person, just was focused on something else. Yeah. And after That wouldn't work out. Yeah, and after three weeks, and, and old Marilyn, like two years ago Marilyn, 
wouldn't have said anything. She would have tried to get some value out of her. And yeah. it was only a two-month thing anyways. And I would have waited. But it's funny when you build your own thing, you become like really protective of it. Yeah. And so three weeks in, I'm like, listen up. I've done my best to get you engaged. You're not engaged. So either you change your attitude or you walk away. Yeah. And when I did that, again, it had nothing to do with her. She was a very smart person. She just wasn't there. Yeah. Um, I felt so proud because it was like, I am not going to allow people who who couldn't be really perf great performers somewhere else to come into this organization and make us average. Yeah. No. For whatever reason. Like, I empathize with the reason. Yeah. But... I need people who are going to be so committed that when I ask them for something, it'll already have been done. Yeah. yeah. Because the first three or four or five people that you hire into company, if if they're not engaged and if they don't want to be there, they'll just bring you down. They won't let you focus on the things you need to focus. I'm always I'm always surprised by the number of people who are who are comfortable with just being average. And what I I usually focus in on in that is they're doing the wrong thing. They are happy to be average because that's not what they don't care about it. They're not invested in it. It's and I and I you know that's a Gary V Gary Vism right. Yeah. You're lucky if you can get eighty five percent out of your 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 eighty five percent investment of your employees in your business. And I don't mean in money, but I mean mm -hmm. in mind space. If you can get eighty five eighty, you're laughing because they're never going to be as invested as you. But I'm so shocked and and surprised at the number of people who are really content with just being average and it it's it, i just look at it and go well if you only want to be average well, what are you doing here yeah i mean <laughs> i think i think that's okay because because mathematically there's always going to be people who are average even if we all become really great right yeah. but um but i just think some people I, I empathize right i'm just not one of them yeah right so i don't judge i'm like that's fine that's who you want to be hey, i'm happy with average people because the things that i'm really engaged in i'm really good at them so if there's someone who's just average they make me look like <laughs> a superstar and look and someone might say james you're really arrogant you know because someone will say you know what's your class like? I, say, I my class is a brilliant show yeah you come yeah. to any one of my classes they are teachers have to be performers i, I agree mean, i mean and i i kind of teach you know, it is I, I i say i'm going on my stage yeah and people will see me walking down the hall before the class and I'm I'm warming up and they'll go what are you doing is it warming up yeah. I mean I, I I get nervous coming in because this has got to yeah. be the best show of my life it's like stage play right yeah totally and you know if you're going to see come from away it, th those guys got up and they did 90 minutes of that show in Gander Newfoundland of 9-11 and every one of them was spectacular because yeah. everyone coming in that's what they get and if people come in and it's crap they're yeah. going to go out and say, oh, yeah, James's class. That's pretty crap. It's like, <laughs> I'm with you. I, that's, so that's the thing, so that's right? Why I can't, so that's why I, I understand that other people may not have the the need or or just like the, I don't know, the they bug. they don't care. That's fine. That's cool. You be you. I'm going to love you. You can come over for dinner. I just don't want you on my team. Yeah. Right? Um, and I mean, oftentimes people are, are average because also no one inspires them yeah. to be more than that. No one trusts them to be more than that. Yeah. A lot of organizations drive people to be average because yeah. the average ones are the ones that don't get noticed and therefore they're the ones that don't get fired. Right. Yeah. Especially in the UAE where it's such a competitive landscape, right? Yeah. And it's in, in everything from, you know, selling real estate to education. It's 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 a built-in competition. Who's going to be the exceptional? Yeah. Who's going to be the very good? Who's going to be meeting expectations? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's cool. And 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 I think, I don't like having people who are content with what they do is also so important yeah. for our system, right? Right? Because every system needs people who are. And I say this honestly with no irony, who are the bureaucrats, right. right? The people who will uphold the rules, make sure that everything's done and file the files. And, and it's important. And I say that without demeaning it, yeah. but I'm just not one of them, right? Yeah. And that's okay too. <laughs> and in the same way that I accept that this is every kind of person is necessary for a system to work, I just happen to be here. I happen yeah. to be the person who wants to keep challenging and moving and improving and whatever. And I have that bug. And at least the first four or five employees that join the team have to be like that yeah. because hopefully they'll be the ones driving the company for the next 20 years, right? Yeah. And maybe taking over from me at some point. So I don't think anyone's going to be average coming into your company. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. 
Yeah, I hope not. I hope at least we're above, uh, you know, the the middle point at by a little bit at least, you know. Otherwise, we won't survive. Oh man, Marilyn, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, and thank you so much for having me and for creating space for us to talk about what happened in Beirut, but also oh, yeah. for talking about other things. And and it's been really hard over the last few days to just decide if I should feel mopey like and sad and like destroyed or if where I can find the courage to move on and mm. actually having a conversation like this that talks about the future and the inspiration and the ambition um, is really helpful for me because well, yeah, it gives me more strength to just keep moving. So awesome. actually I'm really grateful. Hey, for I'm it. feeding off it too. I got to tell you, I'm inspired. I'm just thinking, <laughs> yeah, what can I do next? What's the, what's the next thing? Brilliant. <laughs> Call me. What do you want to do? Let's do it together. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really important. And to your point, we don't get a lot of these conversations here. So this one's going to like sit very close to my heart. Oh, Thank man. you. You know, I, I, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. How can people get in touch with you? So uh, CosmicCentors.com is our website. Uh, centaurs meaning, uh, you know, the half human, half yeah. horse. Yes. Uh, and we came up with this name um, because we were joking in the early days of Zoom that people were going to be wearing corporate shirts and pajama bottoms. So they were going to look like centaurs. Yeah. Um, so CosmicCentors.com is the website. Uh, my email is Marilyn at Cosmic Centaurs, but you can also find me on LinkedIn, um, Marilyn Zachauer. That's pretty simple. And then all my contact information is there. You can listen to Who Run the World, um, the podcast that I co-host with Rhea, and reach us through um, the emails uh, and the Instagram account over there on Who Run the World Pod. Uh, so really, you can't miss me uh, if you want to get in touch. I, and I always answer, by the way. I don't there ignore anybody's messages. So if anyone thinks there's a way they want to collaborate, talk about Lebanon, talk about the future of work, yeah, work on I, who run the I, world. I'm just dreaming know. of how you can take Cosmic Centaurs and where the next step is with the Lebanese situation. I mean, it just seems to me yeah, like Yeah, I, I mean, I think the next step is employing people there. Yeah. And yeah. uh, giving them ac access to fresh dollars that they can use yeah. in a crumbling economy. That's that's the, the other thing I've been obsessing about. And I've been talking to a few friends of mine at LinkedIn about how we can do this at scale. Um, but yeah, reach out. I mean, no matter where you are, and especially if you're in Lebanon, and if there's any way I can help, I always answer every message that I get. Oh, wow. Well, you know what? With that... It's time to say goodbye. Thanks, James. It was <laughs> Thank lovely speaking to you. Thank you. Marilyn Zakara has been joining me. We've been talking about her incredible journey. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be catching up again and again and again. I'm sure about that. Really big thank you to the folks at Rove Hotel downtown for letting us sit in the lobby and record this podcast. Arches audio for the music. They do a great job. You know what? We'll be back with you really, really soon. You want to listen to more about what we're doing? www.podaholics.com. That's Podaholics with a K. And you can find us across the socials. Have a great one. My name is James Pikeaway. This is Podaholics. Podaholics.